0: Welcome to episode 129 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime, FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Michael E. Anderson, who served in the FBI for 28 years. He was assigned to the San Diego Division, Austin Resident Agency, and as a supervisor at FBI headquarters, prior to reporting to the Houston Division as a white-collar crime supervisor managing highly complex financial crimes and intellectual property investigations. In this episode, Michael E. Anderson reviews the Enron investigation, the largest and most complex white-collar crime case in FBI history, for which he received the Attorney General's Award for Exceptional Service. Subsequently, he was promoted to Assistant Special Agent in Charge, ASAC, and initially oversaw the entire Houston Division criminal program. Michael E. Anderson is a certified fraud examiner who has spoken extensively about Enron and ethics to universities, private groups, and companies around the country. He can be contacted via his LinkedIn profile. Now, if you've been listening to this podcast for even a few episodes, you know that I love white-collar crime cases. So I was absolutely thrilled to speak with Michael E. Anderson about Enron. Before we get to the interview, I just want to let you know that my brand new seven-week-old grandson and his parents are visiting me this week from Raleigh. Those were a few words from my co-host for this intro, Carter. And what he was trying to say was that we're still looking for Firefighter Joan 77, the winner of the It's a Boy, It's a Book, FBI swag giveaway. So firefighter Joan 77, I'm still waiting to hear from you. And unfortunately, if I don't hear from Joan by September 1st, I will just have to choose another winner for that big giveaway. But don't forget to be considered, you must be a member of my reader team. To join my reader team, all you need to do is go to my website, Jerry Williams, and that's j-e-r-r-i-williams.com to sign up. When you join my reader team, you will get a copy of my FBI reading resource, books about the FBI written by the very FBI agents who have appeared on this podcast. There are more than 40 books on the FBI reading resource, crime fiction. True Crime and Memoirs. My books, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers are there too. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcast or Google Podcast. Thank you. Now here's the show.
1: I am excited to introduce my guest, Michael Anderson. Hi, Mike.
2: Good morning, Jerry. Thank you for the invitation to be on your podcast. What I want to talk about today is Enron Major Case 187. So it was the investigation into the failure of the Enron Corporation. Where do you want to start? Well, it was almost 17 years ago. It would be 17 years ago in December that I opened the Enron case. And I, I sometimes think, why is this case still important? Well, it's one of the most significant cases in business history. It's taught in colleges around the country. It's a story of good people gone bad people who allowed money and power to compromise their integrity. And I think it's a good reminder for all of us that we're accountable for our own actions, not just what we do, but also what we say. So what I want to do today is I want to give you my perspective on the case. Based on over 1,800 interviews that we conducted, evidence that we collected, trial transcripts, and other information in the public domain, I want to talk principally about four things. I want to talk about ethics with respect to Enron's leadership, its culture, and its accounting, the role of the financial industry, how we work the case. And at the end, I'll talk briefly about the impact of Enron, as well as some ethical takeaways for the audience. You heard me describe it as Enron Major Case 187. This was the 187th major case in the FBI in 2001 when it was open. At the time, the FBI was 93 years old. So in 93 years, we had 187 major cases.
1: I think it would be helpful to know how the FBI decides what is and what is not a major case.
2: Sure. A major case is a case of national or international significance that requires a tremendous commitment of resources. They could be financial resources. Physical resources, personnel resources, so it's a really, really big case. Like I say, in 93 years, you know, this was the 187th major case. When you think about the millions of cases the FBI works, there just aren't that many major cases. They're they're really big, impactful cases. It would be good to start out with what was Enron. Enron was the seventh largest company in America, had annual revenues of over a $100 billion. It was one of the world's leading electricity, natural gas, and communication companies. It was a very diversified business. They had pipelines. They had power plants. But principally, Enron was a trading company. They traded gas, electricity, metals, paper, even weather, and Enron was the darling of Wall Street in Houston. Politicians coveted the relationship with Enron for political support and contributions and charitable causes counted on Enron for its generosity. In short, Enron was a major power broker in Houston. But after doing this investigation and looking at the interviews, I think Enron had a flawed business model that was directly attributable to the president and CEO Jeff Skilling. Enron had this hubris that they could enter any market and become the leader based on their intellectual capital. So they invested heavily in businesses for which they had little or no experience. And some of these businesses suffered huge losses. One of their divisions, the broadband division, it was a billion-dollar failure. They had another division, Enron Energy Services, that lost over $700 million in one quarter. But it's interesting how Enron, they they very carefully crafted – their public image, and employees were critical in doing that, but it's interesting, not everybody cooperated. A good example is Enron's chief financial officer, a man named Andrew Fastow. There was a Fortune magazine writer who had interviewed Skilling for an article she was writing, and Skilling Skilling didn't like the tone and kind of where it was headed, so he sent Fastow and others to New York to meet with the writer. And as they're walking out, Fastell kind of lingers behind, and he tells the writer, I don't care what you say about the company. Just don't make me look bad. And there were other people at Enron that were like that, that kind of put their their own personal gain ahead of the company. And it's interesting, too, in crafting that message, over time they developed into this trading company. But Enron didn't want to be known as a trading company. Because Wall Street analysts, they look at trading companies a little bit differently because they have uh, less sustainability in earnings. And also, the earnings can go up and down. There's greater volatility. So Enron strongly denied they were a trading company. They said they were a logistics company that moved commodities through their infrastructure to customers at the lowest price. But by 2001, which was the last year Enron was in business, before they filed bankruptcy, 85% of their earnings were from were from trading. And Enron engaged in highly speculative trading, trading also. Uh, but I think, Jerry, I think it's important to point out, no one worked to work at Enron to commit a crime. You know, I do a lot of talks to colleges around the country, and I'll tell the students that 20 or 30 years before this happened, that the Enron executives we charged were sitting where all of them were, never dreamed one day they would be charged with a crime. But there's a fine line between unethical behavior and criminal conduct. And to me, that's one of the key takeaways, and I can't emphasize that enough. There's a fine line between unethical behavior and criminal conduct. For your listeners who aren't law enforcement, to charge somebody with a crime or to convict somebody of a crime I have to show two things. I have to show they had criminal intent. Well, if you're acting unethically, that certainly goes a long way toward establishing criminal intent. It may not be the whole thing, but maybe it is based on the facts. So you have to have criminal intent, and secondly, you have to violate a criminal statute. Well, the fact that you didn't know that your conduct violated a criminal statute is not an excuse. As we say, ignorance of the law is no excuse for committing a crime. I'll tell the students, too, that in their career, they're going to have managers who are going to tell them what they want done, and they've got to figure out how to do it. They may have people that tell them to push for legal loopholes or push for gray areas. But you can't play fast and loose with the rules. It leads to a lot of uncertainty and risk. You know, you risk losing maybe your job, but perhaps you risk exposing yourself to criminal prosecution because your interpretation of that gray area may be on the wrong side of that fine line between unethical behavior and criminal conduct.
1: And that's what makes white-collar crime investigations so difficult. You know what happened, so you're not trying to find out who did it. You're trying to find out if what happened was a crime or not.
2: Exactly. I mean, to me, that's the greatest challenge in white-collar crime. I often describe white-collar crime as a thinking man's crime because a lot of the people that you're investigating investigating a college-educated, extremely smart, and they can design some of the most intricate or some of the most complex fraud schemes. And you've got to kind of peel the onion away. Again, not just show what they did that was criminal, but you've got to show they had criminal intent. And I think Andy Fastow, who was, again, Enron's chief financial officer, he said it best. He, He does a lot of speeches around the country but at a conference in 2013, Andy Fastow said, I knew what I was doing was misleading, but I didn't know it was criminal. I thought that's how the game was played. So, again, he knew what he was doing was misleading, but he didn't know it was criminal. I think that's pretty insightful. As far as factors that contributed to Enron's failure, and I want to touch on these. We're going to talk about ethics. We'll talk about leadership failures. We'll talk about the culture. And then we'll also talk about unethical fraudulent, and aggressive accounting. I won't get too deep into the accounting. I've got an MBA. I'm not an accountant myself, but I have to touch on accounting at least a little bit.
1: That's surprising. I was assuming that you were a CPA.
2: No, I'm an MBA, not a CPA. But on the task force, we brought in people who were CPAs, and it was very, very valuable because we were dealing with some very complex accounting and financial issues, structured finance, which can be very, very complex. So you bring in people that are experts at that, and, and that's what we did. When we talk about Enron's leadership, Stephen Cooper was a turnaround specialist that was hired to lead Enron out of bankruptcy. Ken Lay resigned in January of 2002, and they brought in Stephen Cooper to try to lead Enron out of bankruptcy. And Enron never emerged from bankruptcy But what Stephen Cooper said, 99% of Enron's problems weren't market driven, but leadership related. He characterized it as a massive breakdown in accountability and governance. Now, Enron's chairman, the CEO and chairman was a man named Ken Lay, and the president and later CEO was a man named Jeff Skilling. They were Enron. In fact, Jeff Skilling himself said, I bleed Enron blue, and assessed their actions contributed to a culture of dishonesty, which facilitated unethical employee conduct, and even the fraud that contributed to Enron's failure. But they were vastly different men. Ken Lay was well-liked at the company. He was this avuncular this uncle-type figure, this grandfatherly-type figure. He was pleasant. People liked to be around him. There was a, an analogy between he and Skilling, and it said that when, when Ken Lay walked into the room, he remembered your spouse's name, your kids' names, what activities they were involved in, but Jeff Skilling was different. He was arrogant. He was abrasive. He was intimidating. That analogy, that same analogy said when, when Jeff Skilling walked into the room, he walked in with such an intensity that he wasn't the type of person you wanted to cross paths with. Well, as liked as Kenlay was, Enron employees in part didn't know the true Ken Lay that secretly acted out of self interest and preservation, who tacitly overlooked transgressions as long as employees were making money for the company and even overtly hired family members. I think employees overlooked issues with Ken Lay because he was such a good man. He was such a nice man. He was so good to the employees. I think there's a tendency, if you've got somebody who's a a nice guy, really good guy, people tend sometimes to give them a pass on maybe something that they do that they don't agree with.
1: But isn't that the con man's persona? To be charming, to be kind.
2: You know, I'll tell you, Jerry, I never met a con man that wasn't likable. You know, like you, I'm a white-collar guy. I've worked a lot of economic crimes. i never met a con man who I'm sitting there interviewing him, and I thought, you know, this guy's a decent guy. This guy's a good guy. You know, they have good personalities. They have knowledge over a broad range of subjects. Now, it's shallow knowledge, but they can talk to really almost anything. But then quickly you start thinking, well, that's why this con man was so good, because he is so convincing. Yes. But with Ken Lay, you know, I don't think it was intentional on his part. Uh, he was more focused externally, whereas Jeff Skilling ran day-to-day operations of the company. And we'll talk a little bit later about Ken Lay's indictment and Ken Lay's later conviction. But, you know, to kind of go back to where he was within the company, in the autumn of 2001, the stock price at Enron was declining significantly. And for a period of time, Enron employees were locked out of of making changes to their pension plans because of a change in plan administrators, very, very poorly timed when you think about the way the stock price was dropping. But during that time, Ken Lay was publicly encouraging employees to keep their retirements in Enron stock. And he was very vocal in proclaiming that he was a net buyer, that he believed in the company so much he was a net buyer. But secretly, Ken Lay was selling a lot of stock. In 2001, Kinley sold 1.77 million shares of Enron stock for a little over $70 million. But the key is these stocks—these stock sales weren't on the open market that everybody could see because Kinley had a line of credit, a $7.5 million line of credit that the company gave him. And he would charge up the line of credit, and then he would use his Enron stock to pay it off. And employees had no idea what was going on. Because normally when an officer or director buys or sells stock, it's reported every single time to the Securities and Exchange Commission. But in this case, because Lay was selling stock back to the company, Enron employees had no idea because it only had to be reported one time at the end of the year in a proxy statement, which it was. But that was after Enron had filed bankruptcy. It's interesting, too, with Lay because he took care of his family and ensured they were enriched in the culture of nepotism. The relationship between Lay family members and the company raised questions about Enron's willingness to keep separate Ken Lay's personal and Ken Lay's business interests. Ken Lay formed Enron. Back in 1985, there were two companies that came together, and Ken Lay became the president of that new company, which was Enron. Ken Lay had been with Enron since its inception. But two of Ken Lay's children worked at Enron, in fact, three of them, because his stepson also worked there in various capacities. But one thing that really incensed employees was they had to use Kenley's sister's travel agency for all their corporate travel. So here his sister owns a travel agency, and all the way back to Enron's formation, employees had to use that travel agency for all their corporate travel. There was an employee who said they would try to use a different travel agency, but after submitting one or two travel vouchers, they were admonished, you have to use travel agency in the park. Well, again, what does it say about a senior leader in a company where, you know, he hires his family? What does it say about a guy? I think that's pretty insightful. Lay also had a history of overlooking problems with employees as long as they were making money for the company. Most significantly was a place called Valhalla, New York, where there was a group of traders who nearly broke the company. These traders had racked up huge profits shorting barrels of crude oil. So they were betting prices would go down. And they had a trading limit of 12 million barrels. Well, they exceeded that until they had shorted 87 million barrels. So they exceeded the trading limit by seven times. They brought that to the attention of Ken Lay, but he dismissed his petty jealousy because he thought these employees were making so much money for the company. Now, eventually, they convinced Ken Lay to at least allow an audit of the books up there. Well, guess what they found? There were two sets of books. And if prices had risen, it could have broken the company because Enron was on the hook for about $500 million. And at the time, the asset base was only about $400 million. So it took traders about three weeks to unwind those trades, and Enron escaped with a $140 million loss. But the key is Ken Lay ignored concerns that were brought to his attention because he thought these traders were making so much money for the company. And that continued. Even in the autumn of 2001, when. Again, the stock price was dropping and there were, Enron was kind of in its death spiral. Lay continued to support the chief financial officer, Andy Fastow. Andy Fastow, some crazy thing that the board had authorized him to run a side business, to run some equity partnerships, and then authorized him to buy assets from the company. I mean, when you think about it, here's your senior most finance person senior most finance man in the company, but he can run a side business to buy assets from the company. And the thing is, those, those partnerships were used to move underperforming assets off the books to help Enron meet its quarterly numbers. So it was very, very advantageous for Enron to do this, certainly unethical. They had to waive the conflict of interest provisions in the employee handbook. But nonetheless, Enron used this to their advantage. In early September of 2001, in the autumn of 2001, there were a series of newspaper articles about Andy Fastow's partnerships and illegalities related to them. Ken had continued to support Andy Fastow, even as late as October the 23rd in an all-employee meeting where he said he and the board continued to have the highest faith and confidence in Andy Fastow. And he only sent him home the next day on an indefinite leave of absence after two board members interviewed Fastow, and they asked him how much money he had made from running these partnerships. And he admitted that he had earned over $45 million from running these partnerships, which far exceeded his Enron salary. And he had told the board that his time and earnings from these would be minimal. I think Kenley's attitude about compliance is best summarized in a statement he made at trial, where he said, rules are important, but you shouldn't have to be a slave to the rules either. I think what Ken Lay was saying, rules are important as long as they don't interfere with what you want to do, which was kind of what was at the core of Enron's problems. They played fast and loose with the rules.
1: Why would he allow Andy Fastow to earn this huge amount of income in this side business? What was Ken Lay getting out of it?
2: What Ken Lay was getting out of this was Enron was meeting its quarterly numbers because Enron was a failing business. 2000, 2001, Enron was failing. And by by using these partnerships, Enron was allowed to, was able to meet their quarterly numbers, to meet their, their annual numbers. And so, again, it was advantageous for Enron to do that, illegal, because it manipulated Enron's earnings. But, you know, and again, I go back to Fastow told the board that his time and earnings from these would be minimal. So, Andy Fastow lied. Andy Fastow lied to the board. He lied to Ken Lay because, like I say, he made over $45 million from running these. And so Ken Lay, Ken Lay approved them. The board approved them. The president, later CEO, Jeff Skilling. Jeff Skilling knew about these partnerships. Now, Enron put in place rules that were supposed to be followed. They were supposed to be reviewed. And Jeff Skilling was supposed to sign off on the deal approval sheets. But what our investigation found is the review of these partnerships was only cursory. That people signed off on them. You know they didn't want to deal with Andy Fastow. Andy Fastow was a very abrasive person. He had a, a temper, and people just didn't want to be on the opposite side from Andy Fastow. And even Jeff Skilling. Jeff Skilling was supposed to approve the deal approval sheets for these partnerships. But what we found is a lot, or many of the deal approval sheets, skilling never approved. Skilling never approved them. So the board tried to put in controls to monitor these, but they were never followed. They were never followed. So that that's kind of what Enron got out of these, was it enabled them to meet their numbers to try to keep the stock price up.
1: I guess also that just gives us an idea of the – Type of money are the amount of money that Skilling and Lay were pulling out of this? If they didn't care that their head finance guy was making an additional forty-five million. Well,
2: actually, Jerry, they did care because when Ken Lay found out about it, that's when he let Andy Fastel go. Now, Jeff Skilling, he testified before Congress, and Congress asked him, "Was it true that he'd made over three hundred million dollars from selling a stock?" and and he said yes. So both he and Lay, both Skilling and Lay, you know, became very, very wealthy from their time at Enron. Again, just in 2001, Ken Lay sold stock for over $70 million. So they both earned tremendous amounts of money, you know, from Enron. Now, I want to talk briefly about Jeff Skilling because he plays a key role in this, particularly in in, in kind of setting the corporate culture. Skilling was brash, he was arrogant, he was abrasive, he was condescending. He has a bachelor's degree from SMU, and then he got an MBA from Harvard Business School. And it's it's kind of interesting his philosophy. There was a global finance executive who worked for direct who worked directly for Skilling, and he described Skilling's philosophy as he said it was all about creating an atmosphere of breaking the rules. For example, our official vacation policy was you could take as much as you wanted, whatever you wanted, as long as you delivered results. He said it drove the human resources department crazy. So here you have your top two executives to where, you know, their, their, their philosophy is it's okay to break the rules, you know, as long as you're making money for the company. So when you have your top two executives who have this attitude, don't you think that infects a culture? It absolutely does. And giving Skilling's encouragement for rule-breaking and fostering an intimidating and aggressive culture, it's not surprising that the ethical boundaries at Enron eroded away. On two different occasions, Jeff Skilling ordered the manipulation of Enron's earnings to meet analysts' estimates. And I'll talk about one just briefly. At the end of June of 2000, the consensus estimate, by the analyst was Enron would earn 32 cents a share for the second quarter of 2000. Now prior to July 14th, the accountants had done their work and investor relations had prepared a draft press release that Enron had made 32 cents a share. Skilling comes back from a safari from to Africa and he meets with the chief accounting officer and the head of investor relations and Skilling tells him, I don't want to meet the estimate. I want to beat it by two cents. So to find additional earnings, Enron had to improperly tap into a reserve account they had set up to cover a potential liability. And these documents for this reserve account had already been finalized, but they had to be altered to pull out the money Enron needed to get the additional two cents in earnings. At Skilling's trial, there was an Enron accountant and an Arthur Anderson accountant who testified that it was improper to reduce that reserve to meet the earnings targets. And investor relations executives, they testified that the only reason those earnings were increased by two cents was to, was to satisfy Skilling's desire to beat the estimate and not for any legitimate business purpose. I mean, that's fraud. That's fraud right there. Yes, it is. Skilling was not without his own ethical transgressions. He made a series of investments in a, in a photography business that was owned by his girlfriend photography business did about $450,000 in business with Enron, and Enron accounted for about 76% of their revenues. At the trial, at Skilling's trial, he, he recalled investing $60,000 in the business, but a series of checks we presented showed that Skilling actually invests $180,000. He had previously testified to the SEC that he had invested about $3,000. He failed to tell the board of directors about the investment and his relationship with the business owner. And on the stand, he admitted that it might have been, he says, well, it might have been a conflict of interest. That's kind of insignificant in the big scheme at Enron. It's certainly not a criminal act. But the key is it spoke to Skilling's credibility. It spoke to those in a manner that was far easier to understand than complex accounting or off-balance sheet partnerships or structured finance. It, it, it's interesting too. I think although Skilling bled Enron blue, he abandoned Enron when Enron needed him the most in August of 2001. Now Enron filed this, filed bankruptcy in December of 2001, but in August of 2001, six months after he became the CEO, Jeff Skilling resigned. He said he wanted to spend more time with his family, but this resignation was very sudden and. Enron does a press release that says he's leaving because he wants to spend more time with his family, but he's interviewed by the Wall Street Journal within two weeks of leaving, and he admitted that one of the reasons that he left was he couldn't keep the stock price up, and I think he's personified in a quote he made to CNN where he said, if I knew then what I know now, I still wouldn't do anything different. How can you say that? Over 20,000 employees lose their jobs, $2 billion in pensions evaporate, $60 billion in market value is gone, but Skilling wouldn't do anything different.
1: He's already admitted to ethical and fraudulent activity, but he would do it again?
2: He would do it again.
1: I will say this,
2: Jerry. Skilling never admitted to fraudulent activity. To this day, he doesn't think he did anything wrong.
1: So no acceptance of guilt on his part.
2: Absolutely not. He was later, I'll talk about the trial later, but Skilling was convicted. He's later initially sentenced to 24 years in prison. So after his sentencing, Skilling and his attorneys do a little mini press conference in front of the courthouse. And one of the reporters asked Skilling, hey, you were just sentenced to 24 years in prison. Do you wish you'd pled guilty? Skilling said, no, I didn't do anything wrong. Pretty insightful about both of the senior executives.
1: Wow. And they sat and listened to the same evidence presented to the court and to the jury. And they came, still came out thinking they did nothing wrong.
2: Absolutely. Both of them, Skilling and Lay, both thought they were wrongly convicted and that they had done nothing wrong. Both of them testified at the trial. And I'll talk about what their defenses were, what they said Enron was, and how they disagreed with the government's evidence. So I've talked about the two senior-most executives. Let me move on. Let me talk about Enron's corporate culture. Enron started out as a pipeline company. Pipeline companies generally have very conservative cultures. Pipelines offer a modest but a very steady rate of return. Over time, under Just Stilling's leadership, Enron transitions from a pipeline company into a trading company. Trading companies generally have very aggressive cultures. It's a dog eat dog, survival of the fittest type mindset. And the Enron culture under skilling, while it encouraged intelligence, creativity and risk taking, it also tolerated infighting, backstabbing, and manipulation. Skilling's culture encouraged vanity and greed. I saw in some evidence that I was reviewing, it was a PowerPoint of a Jeff Skilling speech, and one of the bullet points was pay people more than they're worth and demand more, and that's what Enron did. Again, Skilling thought greed was the greatest motivator. Generally, Enron's salaries were significantly higher than the industry average, much higher than their their competitors'. So Enron did pay people more, but demanded a lot from those employees.
1: That is just unbelievable that a corporation values people who are motivated by greed. Not by doing good work, but by greed. That that tells you a lot about the um, about the people who ran Enron.
2: It does. It does. Again, that was Jeff Skilling. Jeff Skilling drove that culture. Jeff Skilling created that culture at Enron. Employees attempted not only to crush outsiders, but each other. There was a trader who said he was afraid to go to the bathroom because the guy sitting next to him might use the information off his screen to trade against him. So when you think about it, how can a company be successful and sustainable when it has this rot within? It can't. There's a whistleblower at Enron. A lot of people have heard of her Sharon Watkins. She described the culture at Enron as a complete breakdown in moral values, breakdown in small steps in the wrong direction that accumulated over time. There was there was an Enron employee who said, once you get there and you realize how it was, do you stand up and lose your job? He said it was easy to get into the mindset, well, everybody else is doing it, so maybe it's not so bad. There were a few people who did speak out, Sharon Watkins. Margaret Siccone, a man named Stuart Zisman. But the employees who did speak out, they were labeled as disgruntled. They were marginalized within the company. So that kind of gives you an idea of what the culture was like at Enron. You know, some employees in some areas, they had no idea what was going on at the company. They saw Enron as a great place to work. They got paid well. But there were other areas within the company where the culture was exactly as I described, and particularly in the accounting area, the finance area, the trading area, those were areas where it was extremely, extremely aggressive culture. So we've talked about the two senior-most leaders. We've talked briefly about the culture. Let's talk about the accounting. I would be remiss if I didn't talk briefly about Enron's unethical Aggressive and sometimes fraudulent accounting because that accounting was used to keep a failing company in business for longer than it should have been. And it's interesting, too. I'm going to talk about accounting fraud, but for your listeners who aren't in law enforcement, there's no accounting fraud criminal statute. Even though you hear a lot about accounting fraud, there's no accounting fraud statute. The principal statutes we use to prosecute corporate fraud are wire fraud, mail fraud, and securities fraud. Now, senior officers at Enron, they breached their fiduciary duty by manipulating Enron's financial statements through the design, implementation, and materially inadequate disclosure of structured finance transactions. They knew they were structuring and implementing transactions that gave the appearance of generating income and cash flow, but keeping repayment is off-balance sheet or something other than debt. I'm often asked, well, when did the fraud, when did the accounting fraud at Enron start? I always laugh and say, if I knew that, I'd write a book and I wouldn't be out doing these speeches. But I'll say by at least 1997 or 1998, senior officers in tax, finance, and accounting engaged in structured financing activities that caused Enron to incur staggering debt. A, A good example of Enron's aggressive accounting was something called Project Bravehearts. It was a partnership that Enron developed with Blockbuster, and it was intended to provide movies on demand over phone lines. So something we kind of take for granted today, Netflix and Hulu and things like that. But back in 2001, that was pretty forward-thinking, pretty revolutionary. So Enron and Blockbuster agreed to this partnership, and they do a, a couple beta tests, but they're never really quite that good, never, never successful, never economically sustainable. But after the partnership was formed within a few months, Enron recorded $110 million in profits, even though they hadn't really done anything. They had not done anything. Uh,
1: well, how, how did that happen?
2: Enron used something called mark to market accounting or they could claim the future values of contracts today and you I mean those are those those valuations are supposed to change they're kind of based on the conditions but at Enron you know they would they would claim those future revenues today and something marked to market accounting is something that a lot of companies use and is certainly not anything illegal but particularly on trading companies trading companies Use mark to market accounting because the values of securities change daily. So Enron had gotten approval to use mark to market accounting on the trading side, but then they expanded that for the entire company. So that gives you some insight into, you know, again, what they were doing. And I don't want to get too deep into the accounting because again, I'm not an accountant, but it just, just on the surface, it just doesn't look right. Now Enron, they were the master at managing their Financial statements for three reasons. The need for cash. Enron had business units that hammered cash, so they needed cash. They needed to maintain an investment grade credit rating. Enron borrowed a lot of money, so they needed to keep the cost of capital as low as possible. And on the trading side, they needed an investment grade credit rating. And they needed to keep the stock price up. Enron used their stock to collateralize deals, so they had to keep the stock price up. Enron engaged in a lot of structured finance transactions. And that allowed Enron to understate their debt, which favorably affected their key financial ratios. In 2000, 96% of Enron's reported net income and almost 100% of its cash flow from operations were attributable to six accounting techniques, six accounting techniques. That's unbelievable. And if not for those accounting techniques, Enron's debt would have been $22.1 billion dollars rather than the $10.2 billion that it reported on December the 31st of 2000. So the debt was more than twice what they were reporting.
1: Wow. So I, mean, these, I think
2: that's something that, that shareholders or analysts, they would want to know that.
1: Absolutely.
2: Absolutely, they would want to know that.
1: And these six accounting techniques were all manipulative
2: techniques. Yes, yes. Now, these accounting techniques on their own were not illegal. But the way Enron applied them, Enron didn't always follow the rules, the accounting rules. GAAP or generally accepted accounting principles or the Financial Accounting Standards Board, their rules, Enron didn't always follow those in their design and implementation of these transactions. But again, the way they manipulated the financial statements, they diverged materially and substantially from Enron's true economic condition, and that's called fraud. That's called fraud. If, you know, someone were to ask me, what was the fraud at Enron? Kind of my elevator speech. To me, the true fraud at Enron was the manipulation of its financial statements by misusing legitimate accounting techniques to falsely generate earnings and cash flow and misrepresent the debt. The first, that's the first part. And the second part is the fact that they lied and covered it up to the employees. To the analysts, to the financial industry, and even the regulatory agencies. So we talked about the two senior most leaders. We talked about the culture. We talked briefly about the Enron's accounting. Let's talk about the role of the financial industry. Because I think the financial industry, they played a key role in this. And I'll tell you, Jerry, I think it's important to always go back and review what you did and kind of assess what could we have done better. Well, this is one of those areas because we didn't really look at the role of the financial industry. We didn't. We just didn't have time. We had agents in Houston, agents in Washington, D.C. Probably at any one time, we had about 25 agents working on this case. And we were so focused on Enron. But in looking back We should have looked at the financial industry, whether that's bringing on more people in Houston or bringing on more people in DC or even letting another office work that portion of the case. We should have done that. So what I'm going to talk about now, I'm going to touch briefly on the financial industry, but this information is from the bankruptcy examiner. When Enron filed bankruptcy, the bankruptcy court in New York appointed a bankruptcy examiner. It was a law firm and their job was to look at Look at Enron's finances. Look at the related party transactions. And they produced a series of reports that they are available on the Internet. You know, at one time, I still have my copies, but I mean, I've probably printed maybe 10 different versions of their reports because they were very, very insightful into what was going on inside Enron as well as within the financial industry. But Enron could not have engaged in their accounting without the complicity of the financial industry. Now, the financial institutions, they contended that they didn't owe any duty to Enron with respect to their accounting decisions, their financial statements, or related disclosures. But quite frankly, they aided and abetted Enron's financial fraud.
1: When you're talking about the financial industry, I'm assuming that you're talking about outside a town firm that was supposed to audit the corporation. That's certainly one part.
2: Arthur Anderson did both the internal and the external accounting at Enron. But what I'm specifically talking about here are financial institutions, Citigroup, Morgan Chase, Barclays, Deutsche Bank, CIBC, and Merrill Lynch. Those were the six financial institutions that were key. Each one of those appeared to have violated or ignored their own guidelines for appropriateness and each had knowledge of the wrongful conduct that Enron engaged in. For example, Citigroup, from 1997 to 2001, Citigroup completed over 60 transactions at Enron and they received about $188 million in revenue related to Enron. A person might ask, well, why would these financial institutions do this? for money, because Enron paid a lot of money. Enron paid a lot of money to these financial institutions. And Andy Festo, Andy Festo was a guy who would browbeat the bankers. He was a guy that would get on the phone, and he would yell, and he would hang up on them, and he would move on to the next banker until he found somebody who would agree to do a transaction with Enron. Merrill Lynch is another one. At no time Where's the relationship more critical than in December of 1999 when Merrill Lynch did two deals with Enron that allowed Enron to substantially inflate and misstate their financial performance for the year end as well as for the quarter? You know, again, why didn't we look at the financial industry? We just didn't have enough people. You know, and the government, people think with well, the government, you've got indefinite resources. You know, you've got as many as you need. But you and I both know from working inside, No, we have limited resources. You've got to make the most with what you have. It's not like I could have added, you know, more people to this case than where we had 50 people working on this case. No, we were hard-pressed to get the 25 at any one time. When I say 25, that would be agents working on the case. We were hard-pressed to keep 25 agents working on this case. And I'll talk a little bit about how we formed the task force and, you know, the agents that we had and how we were structured So that gives you some insight into the role of the financial industry. Uh, But looking back, that's one area I think we could have done a better job looking at the banks, looking at Wall Street, as far as their complicity with Enron. I want to move now, Jerry, I want to talk about the investigation.
1: Yeah, I'm very interested in how the FBI learned that what appeared to be a bankruptcy was indeed a financial fraud. I was a white-collar crime supervisor
2: in Houston. I had an economic crime squad. I was supervising a group of agents who were investigating wire fraud, mail fraud, investment fraud, pump-and-dump stock schemes, things like that. But I knew who Enron was. Enron was a major, major corporation in Houston. But I began following events at Enron starting in the autumn, starting in September Again, you had those newspaper articles about Andy Fastell's partnerships and illegalities related to those. In October, Enron reported the third quarter numbers. They lost over $600 million. They had a $1.2 billion reduction in shareholder equity. So that kind of got my attention. Didn't open a case. To open a case, I needed a reasonable suspicion that a crime had occurred. In November, Enron had to go back and restate five years of earnings because of a problem with one of their structured finance transactions. Looking back now, I could have opened a case then, but I waited. I was already engaged in conversations with the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Houston, but didn't open a case. On December the 2nd, I believe it was December the 2nd, Enron filed bankruptcy in New York. And two days after that, I opened the case. A lot of uh, media reporting talks about the Enron investigation opened with the start of the Enron Task Force in January of 2002. But really, the case was opened in December of 2001, early December of 2001. So I, I, I type up a nice communication and, and name my subjects. Kim Lay, Jeff Skilling, Andy Fastow, and others unknown. And I go to open the case, and I thought, you know, I better check indices just to make sure nobody else has a case open. And lo and behold, the Los Angeles field office had opened an investigation into Enron in October of 2001, so two months before I was trying to open my case. They had opened a case based on losses suffered by the California Public Employees Retirement System. So I immediately reached out to my colleague, and the Los Angeles field office who were supervising the investigation. The government's prosecutor, the United States Attorney's Office here in Houston, they reach out to the United States Attorney's Office in Los Angeles. And over a period of about two weeks, it takes about that long, Los Angeles agrees to close their case you know, because they thought the evidence was in Houston, the employees were in Houston, so the witnesses were here. Houston should be working this case. But it's funny, it still wasn't that easy, because the New York office, they wanted to work the case. Actually, it wasn't so much the New York FBI office, it was the New York U.S. Attorney's Office in what's called the Southern District of New York in Manhattan, they wanted the case, because New York is of the opinion that for all publicly traded companies, that they should be working those investigations. So you had New York. U.S. Attorney's Office, they wanted the case. For some reason, the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco, what's called the Northern District of California, they wanted the case. So for about 30 to 40 days, we would do these interviews, and we would have a cast of thousands from the government. You would have FBI, New York, San Francisco, Houston. You'd have United States Attorney's Office, New York, Houston, San Francisco, You have the Securities and Exchange Commission that participated in the interviews sometimes with us. So you might have 10 or 15 people from the government, and you're interviewing one person who had maybe one or two attorneys. I can remember also in December, Christmas Eve was on a Monday in 2001. So there was an AUSA or an assistant United States attorney from the Southern District of New York who scheduled an interview on a Friday. And I remember calling her and said, look, Christmas Eve is Monday. Couldn't we reschedule this interview? I've got agents who are going to have to travel to do the interview. They may want to leave, go out of town for Christmas Eve. And I was stunned when the AUSA replied, I don't celebrate Christmas. I don't care. Needless to say, the the agents, they went and did the interview, and then they came home, and then they celebrated Christmas.
1: Logically, it just makes sense to work it in Houston.
2: Absolutely. But the Southern District of New York wanted this case badly. I remember when Director Comey, Director James Comey, visited the Houston field office for the first time. And the <laughs> special agent in charge in the ASOCs, we, we met with him when he first arrived and then we had lunch with him. At the time of Enron, he was a United States attorney in the Southern District of New York in Manhattan. And when he came to Houston for the first time, You know, we're talking. I guess he had read my biography that I had investigated the Enron case. And he looked at me and he said, you guys took that case away from us. (laughs) He just kind of laughed after that. But I thought that was kind of funny that he still remembered how much they wanted that case, how badly they wanted that case. But when the case was opened, I initially assigned two agents to it because I knew it was a big case. As you know, in the FBI, generally, it's one case, one case agent. But I knew this was big, so I assigned two agents to it. But within a couple of weeks, I assigned a third agent because it was just bigger than those two agents could handle. Also, when I opened the case, in my heart, I knew it was inevitable that both Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling at some point would face charges. Because when the seventh largest company in America fails, it's important that the leadership be held accountable given that they were responsible for the failure. I also thought, you know, I thought, no matter how many people we convict, the success or failure of this case is going to be judged on whether or not we convict Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling. Now, if we charged 100 people on this case, if we convicted 100 people on this case, but then if Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling were found to be not guilty, I thought, you know, this whole investigation will be judged a failure. Initially, when, we, when I first opened this case, we worked closely with the United States Attorney's Office here in Houston for the Southern District of Texas. Uh, but very quickly, over after about a month of uh, 40 days, they had to recuse themselves. They had spouses that worked at Enron, they had friends that worked at Enron, so they recused themselves, and so they stepped out of the case. And they, they being the Department of Justice, hand-selected prosecutors from around the country to prosecute the case. Generally, they were from the Eastern District of New York and the office in Brooklyn. But with the U.S. Attorney's Office in Houston recusing themselves, around that same time, the Enron Task Force was formed. So we had prosecutors that were mainly from New York, but they officed in Washington, D.C., prosecuted the case here. But more importantly, internally within the FBI, there was another squad that was formed. So I was in charge of the squad of agents in Houston that worked the Enron case. There was also a squad of agents in Washington, D.C. that worked out of the criminal investigative division that jointly investigated the case with us. And you think, why would a group of agents in D.C. work the Enron case with agents in Houston? Robert Mueller was a new director He had started the week before the September 11th terrorist attacks. So he'd been on the job about three months. And Director Mueller was of the opinion that all major cases should be worked out of Washington. And I can remember one weekend coming in and having to do a briefing book for the special agent in charge of Houston to take and go back to meet with the director to talk about Houston's role in the case. And so, you know, I'm working with the United States Attorney's Office and, for this briefing book I had to put together, I had to put together a book that, that identified potential subjects, potential charges, an investigative strategy, and they also wanted biographies. They wanted biographies of the agents in Houston who were going to work this case. And we, both in Houston and D.C., we took agents internally and picked the right agents, the agents who were CPAs or agents who had structured finance experience, who had major case experience. So we took agents internally from Houston and internally from Washington field office, but then the FBI also canvassed around the country for agents who had the experience we needed to work on this case. And in Houston, we transferred five agents from outside. I think D.C. transferred a similar amount, and that was the kind of the inception of the Enron task force. So, again, he had agents in Houston and agents in Washington, D.C., who worked together. In retrospect, maybe not the most effective or the most efficient structure, but that's what Director Mueller wanted, and we worked hard to make that structure work. We integrated the groups to where we had agents in Houston and agents in Washington, D.C., working together on the same transactions or the same portions of the investigation because we didn't want... Separate groups working separate portions of the investigation because you, you've got to create a synergy. And we did that again by integrating the groups so that they were working together.
1: You have them partner up. So there was an agent in Houston who was working on the aspect of the case with an agent in Washington. Absolutely. We put them
2: together in teams
1: because when you have
2: 25 plus FBI agents, you've got six or eight prosecutors, it was easy to put them together into teams so that you could work several different areas of the case at the same time and to be able to move it forward. But absolutely, so within an area we were working, we'd have agents from D.C. and agents from Houston working together, kind of creating a synergy, leveraging each other's experience Organizationally, we were headed by an inspector in charge, Joe Ford, in Washington, D.C., that oversaw the entire investigation. Joe was able to stand up to the prosecutors when necessary, and at times that was needed. Joe never hesitated to tell people who disagreed with him that he'd been appointed by the director to run this case. Joe stayed on the case
1: for, I don't
2: know, two, two and a half years. So I'm extremely thankful for Joe. And the leadership he showed and the way he was able to move this case forward and work with the prosecutors to do that. But when you open an investigation like this, where do you start? The seventh largest company in America fails. Where do you begin? Well, certainly we had newspaper articles that alleged illegalities at Enron, Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Houston Chronicle. The Securities and Exchange Commission, they had launched an informal inquiry that was later elevated to formal inquiry. so we had information from the SEC. But probably one of the most valuable things we had at, this case, at the beginning of the case was something called the Powers Report. William Powers at the time was the dean of the law school at the University of Texas at Austin, and he was hired by Enron to head up a special committee to look at Andy Fastell's partnerships, to look at their related party transactions. And on February the 1st of 2002, he produced what's called the Powers Reports. The case was opened December of 2001. We had the Enron Task Force formed in January of 2002. So right after the Enron Task Force was officially formed, William Powers produces what's called the Powers Reports. That was a roadmap. That was a goldmine. At the beginning of this case, we focused on three areas. We looked at insider trading. We looked at Andy Fastow's off-balance sheet partnerships. We also looked at the improper use of reserves. Enron had a business unit, Enron Energy Services, it was called. And in one quarter, they lost over $700 million. And Enron took Enron Energy Services and they consolidated it into their trading operations and then improperly used reserves to hide those losses, to cover those losses. So those were the areas we started first focusing on, but... Again, when you have 25 plus FBI agents, six, eight prosecutors, it was easy to put them together into teams and look at a lot of other areas. We looked at Arthur Anderson. We looked at possible perjury by Jeff Skilling because Jeff Skilling testified before Congress. There were Enron In- executives that were called to testify before Congress, and anyone that had any potential criminal liability all exerted their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination Everybody except for Jeff Skilling. Jeff Skilling actually testified. It was kind of combative with Congress. He was abrasive with Congress. So we looked at possible perjury by Jeff Skilling. We looked at fraud in the broadband area. We looked at accounting fraud. We looked at a lot of other areas. And we, we proactively investigated and prosecuted this case. Agents and prosecutors worked more closely together on this case than any other case I've ever seen. We didn't have to investigate every possible criminal act. We didn't have to prosecute every crime. We came across just those that were the most egregious or had the greatest impact. Talk about investigative challenges. There were tremendous investigative challenges on this case. Again, it's the largest and most complex white-collar crime case in FBI history. It was designated a major case. There were tremendous investigative demands on the agents. We did all of our own interviews around the country, around the world, although the world was primarily limited to the United Kingdom. But generally in the FBI, if I need somebody interviewed in Los Angeles. I send a lead to Los Angeles and say, go out and interview Michael Anderson, collect any evidence he might have. I'll describe the case. But this one, because it was so complex, we did all of our own interviews. And not only that, Generally, when you send a lead to another office to interview somebody, you might get back a 5- or 10-page interview write-up, maybe 15 pages. But on this one, it was nothing to have interview write-ups that were 30, 40, 50 pages over very complex accounting and finance. So not only are the agents out doing interviews, but also reviewing evidence because we collected a lot of evidence on this case. So we've got to look at that evidence to find criminal activity. But we also have an obligation. If we charge somebody with a crime and we come across evidence that might help them prove their innocence, we've got to provide that information to them. It's called Brady material. So the agents, you know, doing interviews, they're reviewing evidence. There was a lot of pressure on the agents on this case. It was, it was like drinking out of a fire hose every day. I used to sometimes laugh and call it the Enron Investigation, the Hotel California, because you could check in, but you could never leave. Because most of the <laughs> agents who started this case, they finished this case. They were on the case at the end for the most part.
1: But Who were they interviewing?
2: We interviewed business leaders who had transactions, who dealt with Enron. We interviewed some key business leaders Steve Ballmer, who at the time was the president of Microsoft, again, he was a witness. I don't I want to imply that anything was wrong there, but he was a witness because he had done some business. He knew, he knew Jeff skilling. We interviewed Scott McNeil at Sun Microsystems because they did business with Enron Broadband Services. So the universe of the Enron case just was not Houston because Enron had operations throughout the world across the country. So you had Enron employees, but then there were also other people who were key witnesses on the investigation that lived outside of the Houston area. There was tremendous focus on the investigation from the highest levels of the FBI and the highest levels at the Department of Justice. We conducted over 1,800 interviews on this case. So the investigation lasted a little short of five years but we conducted over 1,800 interviews. We collected tens of millions of pages of hard copy, like paper evidence. We collected four terabytes of electronic data. I mean, today a terabyte isn't a large amount of data because we have high-definition video. We have pictures, high-resolution pictures. But back in 2001, You know, when we first opened the case through roughly 2006, we didn't have that. So the four terabytes that we collected, that's a lot of data. That's a lot of stuff. It's estimated that the print collection at the Library of Congress is 10 terabytes. If that's true, then just electronically, we collected the equivalent of 40% of the print collection at the Library of Congress. You've got to look at that evidence. You've got to review it. Now, did we look at every single page? I laugh and I say, if that were true, we'd still be here today. We'd still (laughs) be here today looking at the evidence. No, you do text searches. You scan it. You do text searches. You do keyword searches. We also collected email for over 600 Enron employees. And I tell you, be careful what you put in emails. I read about some of the most intimate details of people's lives. And I used to think, if you had any idea the FBI was going to read this, You'd be so embarrassed and humiliated. I will say this, it was entertaining at times.
1: Well, we can relate that today and text messages.
2: So true. That is such an understatement. You know, Jerry, one of the first things we did on this case is we did a search at Enron's 50-story corporate headquarters. Enron consented to allowing the FBI to come in and do a search. There was an ex-Enron employee who said when she was uh, leaving the company, she saw boxes of shredded trash. And there were documents that related to Andy Fastell's partnerships. And so the Securities and Exchange Commission had previously served Enron with two subpoenas and asked for documents related to Fastel's partnerships. So Enron allowed the FBI to come in and search its corporate headquarters for documents and records that should have been provided to the SEC. And so we had over 100 agents that participated in the search from multiple FBI field offices. There were many, many professional staff employees who also worked on the search. And we took out over 440 boxes of evidence from that consent search. Evidence that later on proved to be very critical and helped the investigation. We interviewed people while we were there about document destruction. And what we found is Imran wasn't engaged in some concerted effort to obstruct justice by shredding documents. So, you know, we discounted that completely.
1: Why were the documents shredded then?
2: Enron just engaged in the normal document destruction policy, and these were documents that they didn't think they needed. And again, when you interview over 100 people that were kind of involved in that in various capacities, you know, it became obvious quickly that it was not a concerted effort. Keep in mind, shortly after this employee left, Enron had filed bankruptcy. There were a lot of things going on at the company, and these were documents they didn't think they needed. And again, there was certainly very powerful evidence that resulted from that search. We worked this investigation like a criminal enterprise investigation. We started at lower levels of management, and then we worked our way up higher up within the company. So we charged individuals and kind of use our terminology. We flipped them against their bosses and people higher up. We convicted 22 people, nearly the entire senior executive management team, I don't have time to talk about all 22, and quite frankly, they're not all that interesting. But I do want to talk about some of the people. But before I do that, one thing I think is important is nobody went to work at Enron to commit fraud. Never dreamed one day they'd be charged with a crime. But at some point, they stepped across that fine line between unethical behavior and criminal conduct. So the first people we charged were these British bankers based on a fraud deal that Andy Fastow had worked out with them. They pled guilty to wire fraud and were later sentenced to 37 months in prison. That puts a lot of pressure on a man named Michael Copper. Michael Copper was somebody who got money from that fraudulent transaction, somebody who actively participated in the formation of it as well as the execution of that, that fraud. Copper was a managing director at Enron. He was a close associate of Andy Fastow. Copper actually left employment at Enron to run Andy Fastow's partnerships. These off-balance sheet partnerships I talked about earlier, they were called LJM. Copper leaves to run the partnerships. Michael Copper came in and Michael Copper pled guilty in August of 2002 to conspiracy to commit wire fraud and money laundering conspiracy. But the key is Michael Copper cooperates. So now we've got our first Enron cooperator. We've got agents out doing interviews. We're reviewing evidence. We're collecting additional evidence. But now we've got somebody on the inside who's helping us, who's guiding us. Copper was later sentenced to 37 months in prison. Copper was a, was a pretty good witness. He testified at several trials. He confirmed the criminality of that deal with the British bankers, which was called Southampton. He confirmed that Skilling lied to Congress when he said Enron was in great financial shape. He talked about the fraud within the broadband division where we eventually convicted some of the executives. He told us that Andy Fastow had told him to get rid of his computers, which later resulted in Andy Fastow being charged with obstruction of justice. He also said that Ken Lay was supportive of those partnerships that Andy Fastow ran and understood their significance to Enron. So, again, he ties Ken Lay to criminal activity. In October of 2002, we we indict Andy Fastow in a 78-count indictment, charging him with wire fraud, money laundering, obstruction of justice, and conspiracy. Fourteen months later, Andy Fastow pleads guilty. He pleads guilty to conspiracy. He was later sentenced to six months in prison. But now we have our first senior executive at Enron. If you look at Enron's corporate headquarters, all the executives sat on the 50th floor, the top floor of the building. We're now on that 50th floor because we have Andy Fastow who's cooperating. Fastow was a difficult witness. He wasn't always the nicest guy. He was somebody that yelled and screamed to bankers or other employees. But when he first came in, he was in denial. I mean, he pled guilty because he was guilty, but he was in denial. But over time, he came to you know understand his guilt and what he had done at Enron and testified at several trials. Defense attorneys tried to beat him up. I think he kind of held his own.
1: So the difference between him and Skilling and Lay is that he pled guilty and believed that he was guilty. Yes, that's
2: absolutely true. He pled guilty because if he had gone to trial, I'm confident he would have been convicted and gotten a very lengthy prison sentence, but by pleading guilty and cooperating, he got credit for that cooperation, extensive cooperation. He was later sentenced to six years in prison. But his, his cooperation, the things he told us were critical to the convictions of Ken Lay and Jeff Skilling. You know, he talked about how he met with Ken Lay after Skilling left and outlined the problems at Enron. That, you know, the, the, um, that Enron had about 5 to $7 billion in embedded problems. And that he he actually told Ken Lay that Enron had all but run out of options. He outlined outlined problems for Ken Lay, you know, and and gave him a list of problem areas, Enron Broadband Services, Enron Energy Services, some of the international assets. And he also said that Skilling was aware of what he was doing with the partnerships. Skilling didn't know about how much money Fastow was making – but Skilling certainly knew how those partnerships were benefiting Enron. In fact, Fastel told us that Skilling had told him, get me as much of that juice as you can. Meaning, you know, let's do as many deals as you possibly can. So Fastow cooperates, later sentenced to six years in prison. Next, we get a man named Ben Glisson. Ben Glisson was Enron's treasurer. He was indicted on 24 counts of conspiracy, wire fraud, and money laundering, Five months later, Ben Glisson, he pleads guilty. Ben Glisson didn't cooperate, didn't want to cooperate with the government. And it's interesting, too, the day he pled guilty, he actually went to prison. Everybody else on this case, they waited until the case was over. They waited until after the Skilling lay trial to be sentenced and to go to prison. But Glisson, the day he pled guilty in September of 2003, he went to prison. Actually, that was pretty smart. Because by the time we get to the Skilling Lay trial in 2006, Glisson has probably 12 to 18 months left to serve. Glisten was a smart man. I had two senior agents, both been in the FBI 20 plus years, both accountants, go out and they interview Glisten early on. And they came back and they said Glisten was one of the smartest people they had ever met. Glisten designed some of the most complex transactions that Enron was engaged in. Now, although Ben Glisson didn't cooperate with the government, he did testify at trial. He testified at several trials based on an immunity agreement. So the government gave him immunity to testify at trial. He was probably the best witness at every trial in which he testified. He was clean cut. He was courteous, and he consistently maintained his composure in spite of heavy cross-examination. The defense attorneys, they called him the government's cleanup hitter. That was in spite of Ken Lay's attorney calling him a performing monkey.
1: Let me ask you a question because I I, I don't understand his, his thought process because most people plead guilty to get special consideration from the court. You, of course, would get additional consideration from the court if you cooperated. So I don't understand yes. why he didn't do both. That was a
2: decision he and his attorneys made. But he never got credit for his cooperation, even though he testified at several trials. He never got, he never asked for a reduction in his sentence. I think he was somebody that just wanted to do his time and kind of be left alone. But again, the the government kind of compelled his testimony through that immunity agreement. He proved to be a key, key witness. He also talked about meeting with Ken Lay in August and September of 2001 and talking about Enron's poor financial condition. He talked about how Ken Lay lied, you know, when he talked to credit rating agencies, when he talked to the employees, when he talked to analysts. He talked about Andy Pascal's off-balance sheet partnership deals, that, that several of them were fraudulent and kind of went through those. You know, he talked about that the the internal problems at Enron were well known to both Lay and Jeff Skilling. So again, he was a key, key cooperator. So you, you can see how we're kind of moving up. We start out with three British bankers. We move to managing director, chief financial officer, the treasurer. Next person in line is the chief accounting officer, a man named Rick Causey. We indict Rick Causey in February of 2004 on 29 counts of wire fraud, securities fraud, and insider trading. Rick Causey, he also pleads guilty. So in December of 2005, we're preparing for the Skilling Lay Causey trial that was starting in January 2006. Right after Christmas in 2005, Rick Causey pled guilty. So we've got the Chief Accounting Officer who's pled guilty and is cooperating and willing to testify at trial. We never called cause you to testify at trial. We didn't need him. I don't think he would have been a strong witness just based on his personality. But certainly we had the chief accounting officer ready, willing, and available to testify. Also, his, his guilty plea changed the dynamics of the skilling lay trial because now the trial is no longer about accounting. Because we've got the chief accounting officer who's cooperating. So Causey cooperates and he talks about Skilling's false statements and analyst calls. He said that Skilling had told him to make sure that Fastel didn't make too much money from learning those partnerships. He talked about the fraud at that in that Southampton deal, that deal with the British bankers. Rick Cosy was somebody that Fastel went to and told, Hey, this is what the bank wants to unwind the transaction. He didn't know about the fraud at the time, and he was able to confirm the statements that Andy Fastow made that were fraudulent. So again, you see how we're moving up the ladder within the company. Next, we charge Skilling in a 40-count indictment in February of 2004 with wire fraud, securities fraud, insider trading. He was later convicted by a jury on 19 of 28 counts. Originally sentenced to 24 years, four months in prison, but $58 million buys you a very vigorous defense. And that's a number I got from the New York Times. So Skilling spent $58 million on his attorneys, and they appealed his, yeah, a lot of money. Ken Lay's attorneys were paid $30 million. I got both of those numbers from the New York Times. Skilling, he appeals his conviction all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court reversed one of the counts on which he was convicted, what's called the Honest Services Count, that we had charged skilling with that. Honest Services is that the, uh, you know, someone's employer has the intangible right to their honest services. Different court, different judicial districts around the country had interpreted that statute differently, but the Supreme Court took the case to set the standard of what Honest Services fraud was. And what the Supreme Court says was that you can only charge honest services fraud if there were kickbacks or bribes that were paid. Well certainly we didn't have that in this case. So that count was reversed. And then the Supreme Court sent it back to the lower court to determine whether or not Skilling should get a new trial or be resentenced. Well, thankfully the the court determined that he should just be resentenced. So Jeff Skilling was resentenced to fourteen years in prison. fact, he's still in prison now. If you go to the Bureau of Prison website, his estimated release date is February of 2019. Skilling was greatly personally impacted by this, not just because he was incarcerated, but when you talk about the impact of somebody on a personal level, while Skilling was in prison, both his parents died. He had a son. His youngest son died while he was at college in California. Skilling wasn't allowed to go to any of the funerals. That's pretty tough when you think about, to me, just think about the toll that would take on a person to lose both your parents and a child, and you're not allowed to go to the the funerals. So again, I think that's somebody something that people need to think about. Oh, you know, I could do prison. Well, no, you know, there are a lot of other factors besides you just doing prison. Every single prisoner, it affects the entire family. Sometimes it's hardest on the family. But let's talk about Ken Lay. In February of 2004, we indict Ken Lay on 11 counts of wire fraud, securities fraud, and conspiracy, and then bank fraud and false statements to a bank. When Skilling left the company in August of 2001, Lay went from chairman and stepped back down to CEO. So we charge Ken Lay with statements that he made. Ken Lay goes out and makes these rosy statements about how great Enron was doing. I think in Ken Lay's mind that if he's able to turn things around, people will never really know how bad things were at Enron. Well, Ken Lay wasn't able to turn things around. And he was held accountable. He was held responsible for those statements that he made. You know, it was difficult to put together a case on Ken Lay. We had two previous investigative teams that looked at Ken Lay on accounting fraud. We also did an outreach investigation Because when when Enron was failing in the autumn of 2001, Kenley reached out to some of the senior-most members of President Bush 43, his administration. We interviewed people like Vice President Dick Cheney. We interviewed Alan Greenspan, who was the Fed Chair. We interviewed the Secretary of Commerce, Donald Evans. We interviewed the Secretary of the Treasury, Paul O'Neill. We interviewed the President's Chief of Staff and his Deputy Chief of Staff. And what we found was Ken Lay didn't reach out to every one of those people, but he reached out to several. And he kind of laid out Enron's internal problems and described the dire impact it would have on the financial markets if if Enron failed. I think what Ken Lay was hoping was that these people he reached out to would offer some type of bailout or or some type of assistance to Enron. But what we found was they were smart enough not to do that. So Ken Lay lays it out there, how bad things are and the dire effect on the financial markets, but they didn't take it. They just listened to Ken Lay and left it at that. Nobody ever offered a bailout or any assistance. One of the criticisms or critiques that people had about Ken Lay's indictment is they said, well, that's Kenley's job to be the corporate cheerleader as a CEO. That's his job to be the corporate cheerleader. I want to give you an example of what Kinlay said, and we charged Kinlay with fraud. And what I want you to think about, was that corporate cheerleading or was that a criminally misleading statement? Well, Kinlay was convicted on all counts. He was actually, by the time we got to trial, it was ten counts. Kinlay was convicted on all ten counts. Kinlay died before he was sentenced. Kinlay was convicted in May of two thousand and six, scheduled to be sentenced in September. But on the night of July 4th, morning of July 5th in 2006, Ken Lay died. He had a heart attack in Aspen, Colorado. So legally, the way the law is within the Southern District of Texas, within this judicial district, if you die before you've exhausted all of your appeals, then everything is dismissed. So the way it is now, legally, it's as if Ken Lay had never been convicted of a crime.
1: I have never heard of that before. That's fascinating.
2: I mean, that's something that I had never heard of before. Never had that happen before, and certainly had never heard of that. But technically, legally, it's as if Ken Lay had never been charged with a crime. But I always say the people of Houston, they know what Ken Lay did, and they know Ken Lay was convicted for what he did, and that he was held accountable. I mean, this is kind of basic, but it's just a good reminder. You have to tell the truth. That's something I think sometimes we all take for granted. So we indicted Ken Lay for statements that he made. On count 12 of the indictment, we charged Ken Lay with wire fraud. In September the 26th of 2001, at an, in an employee online forum, Ken Lay tells the employees, the third quarter's looking great. We were our numbers. We're continuing to have strong growth in our businesses And at this time, we're positioned for a very strong fourth quarter. We have record operating and financial results, and the balance sheet is strong. So when Kenley said that on September the 26th, what did he know? Well, he knew that as a result of meetings with senior executives, like the chief financial officer, the chief accounting officer, the treasurer, and heads of business units, he knew that the international assets were inflated by $5 billion. He knew there were problems in the business units. He'd been told there were systemic problems at Enron. Although he says the third quarter is looking great, at the time he knew Enron was preparing to announce a significant quarterly loss. Enron lost over $600 million in that quarter. It was the first loss they'd had since 1997. He also knew the balance sheet reflected about $7 billion in embedded losses. So, you know, I ask, was that corporate cheerleading or was that a criminally misleading statement? You know, the jury found that was a criminally misleading statement. I could do the same thing with Jeff Skilling. In this instance, I just chose to focus on Kim Lay. Let's talk about the trial a little bit. Opening statements of trial, Assistant United States Attorney John Houston says, this is a simple case. It's not about accounting. It's about lies and choices. The trial lasted 53 days over 17 weeks. I call it the white-collar crime trial of the century. I use that analogy in part because Jeff Skilling's attorney, his lead attorney, was a man named Dan Petricelli. And at the time of the Enron trial, of the Skilling-Lay trial, Dan Petricelli's most significant accomplishment was he had represented the Ron Goldman family in their successful civil suit against O.J. Simpson. So that's why I kind of use that analogy. This is the white-collar crime trial of the century. It was 53 days of trial over 17 weeks. By that time, we had 14 FBI agents and eight Department of Justice attorneys that worked seven days a week, 18 hours a day, 16 hours a day, whatever it took. The government government called 27 witnesses and the defense called 25. Both Skilling and Lay, they testified in their defense. And they said Enron was a wonderful company. It was a shining star. It was a sound, vibrant company. They had no reason to commit fraud or conspiracy. But there were a few bad apples at Enron. They blamed Michael Copper. They blamed Andrew Fastow. They said there was a liquidity problem, a run on the bank on the trading side. They blamed short sellers. I remember Mike Ramsey, who was Ken Lay's attorney, pounding the podium and describing what vulture short sellers were. So it was really embarrassing for Ken Lay when the government showed that His own son had been a short seller of Enron stock and profited about $166,000 from shorting the stock. They blamed the Wall Street Journal. They said their actions were heavily vetted by attorneys and accountants, which they were. But when attorneys and accountants are given incomplete information or false information, how valuable is that vetting? They said people cooperated out of fear of decades in prison. They blamed everybody but themselves. Wow. The jury deliberated six days, and the jury came back. Killing was convicted on 19 of 28 counts, and Ken Lay was convicted on all counts. And after the verdict, the jury spoke to the media, and I went down and watched it. The jury said they felt the pain and loss of every Enron employee. They said the jury deliberations were like having a 25,000-piece puzzle dumped on the table. And they said there were places in the testimony of both Skilling and Lay where the character was in question. And they said Kinley seemed to have a chip on his shoulder. While Ken Lay was always this very nice man, you know, when the, when the, when the court would break, when the trial would break, Ken Lay would leave, walk out with his wife, and he would shake hands with people and he'd thank them for coming. But when he was on the stand, he was very, very adversarial, very argumentative with the government's attorneys. It was like his personality was a 180-degree change. He was very, very vicious when he was on the stand.
1: Maybe that was his true personality, and all the rest of it was that con man charm that we talked about.
2: He certainly had a lot of charm that he did, Jerry.
1: Let me ask you about the jury, because, again, this is a huge case in Houston that has affected so many people who either worked for Enron or who had relatives, or you know, even the just people that they knew who worked for Enron. Was that an issue, the jury selection?
2: That was certainly something that the defense tried to make a jury issue, or an appeal issue, because the defense, they wanted this trial moved. They wanted to move this trial because of the extensive publicity related to the failure of Enron. And the judge, Judge Simlake, disagreed, and would not move the trial. But what he agreed to do was to allow a more extensive board dyer of the prospective jurors. So he was allowed a more extensive and a lengthier questioning of the potential jurors to be able to determine if they had any potential bias or potential prejudice against both Skilling and Lay. The jury was made up of a school principal, there was a medical assistant, there was a teacher, there was a human resource specialist. There were several entrepreneurs on the jury. but again, there was very extensive questioning of the jurors to make sure they didn't have bias. but after the conviction, skilling's attorneys that was one of their appeal issues that they used, so it absolutely was a consideration or a factor. But again, I feel confident that we had a fair and objective jury. In the response to the verdict, Skilling was kind of stoic. He said, we fought a good fight. Some things work, some things don't. Obviously, I'm disappointed. Lay was different. Lay was this controlled rage. You now he snaps and he says, certainly this is not the verdict we expected. So over the, the whole of the Enron investigation, we convicted 22 people. We forfeited over $105 million back to the victims. At the time, I think we sent a message to Wall Street that we will hold executives accountable for their actions regardless of their position or any political associations or affiliations. But I think that message has been lost over time, and especially after the 2000 financial meltdown when there really weren't that many people charged. I know I've had people ask me or people have told me, well, Mike, you didn't send that message because people still commit fraud. And my response is, well, no, at the time we did send the message, not everybody listened. And those that didn't listen certainly will go back and will charge them. You know, just some of the the impact of Enron. In the short term, Enron had a, a pretty significant effect on Houston's economy. It reverberated to small businesses, to charities, office vacancy rates rose. He had over 20,000 employees lose their jobs. I think Enron has entered the American lexicon with everything wrong with corporate America, cooking the books, self-dealing, fraudulent accounting. I think it raised public awareness and galvanized public opinion of corporate misdeeds and abuses and arguably instituted a new era of legislative oversight not seen since post-depression America when you had the Securities Acts of, I think it was 32 and 33. But we have new laws. We have Dodd-Frank. We have Sarbanes-Oxley. I think we changed the way boards operate. Boards are not as willing now to just rubber stamp what senior executives want to do. But I would say with this focus, will there be another Enron? Yeah, there will be. As long as you have greedy people, who think they're smarter than the the person next to them, there will be another Enron. But I always say, I just hope it's not as big as Enron. do a lot of speeches on this case, and I always leave with some ethical takeaways. Pay attention to small details. Don't be afraid to speak the truth. You've got to do it respectfully. You've got to do it responsibly. But don't be afraid to speak the truth. Don't let big salaries lure you into overlooking wrongs. Being an ethical person is more than knowing right from wrong. It's having the fortitude to do right when much is at stake. Pay attention to the tone set by the organization's senior leadership because they set the corporate culture. Employees look to them to see what's permissible within a corporate culture. It's more than just a code of ethics. And I would say if your value systems are challenged and there's tolerance for ethically challenged employees, get out of that job. And lastly, if you're not always honest, there may come a time in your life where you want to make a stand for what's right, that you're filled with fear that you're going to be caught for something that you've done. So it's not easy to be honest and ethical, but it's the right thing to do, but not just for individuals, but also for corporations. It's important for corporations to conduct their business with honesty and integrity. Everyone had a vision and values video where they said they dealt with people of absolute integrity. They played by all the rules. They meant what they said and they said what they meant. And it's both skilling and lay talking. And I'll use that video or a snippet or a portion of that video in my speeches. And I always point out that when skilling and lay both say that, they knew that wasn't true. You go back to Andy Fastow, what Andy Fastow said at that conference. I knew what I was doing was misleading, but I didn't think it was criminal. I thought that's how the game was played.
1: But it does seem that our country is kind of flipping back to some of those things that may have gotten us into trouble back then, especially when it comes to deregulation. Is that something that we need to be concerned about? That's
2: a great, great question. I may be naive. I don't think I am. I like to think that most people will conduct their affairs with honesty and integrity. I think most businesses, the vast majority of businesses, conduct their operations with honesty and integrity. And it's just a small number that that give everybody else a bad reputation. But I do see kind of a degradation in today's society of values, ethics, following the rules. And it's something that troubles me, because I hate to use a cliche, but that's a slippery slope. You know, you start heading down that direction. How do you correct that? How do you correct that as a society? How do you correct that as a government?
0: And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Michael E. Anderson You'll find links to newspaper articles and a video about the Enron investigation. There's a really cool infographic showing the 10 worst corporate accounting scandals of all time. Of course, Enron is right there. But to find out what they consider to be the other top corporate fraud investigations, make sure you go to my website and check out that infographic. I hope you share this episode with your friends, family, and associates. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcast or Google Podcast or your favorite podcast app. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week. I'll have one for you next week. But in the meantime, if you're looking for something good to read, I hope you check out my crime novels, Pay to Play and Greedy Givers, my FBI Corruption Squad series available at Amazon.com. As ebooks, trade paperbacks, and pay to play is also available as an audiobook. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.